can go ahead and turn to John 12. Begin by asking, is Jesus unbelievable? Why is it when there is actually good reason to believe in Jesus, we thought about that this morning in Paul's class, that people don't believe? Sometimes people are really interested in why it is you do believe. How often do people think at length about why they don't? And does that have anything to teach us or to challenge us who do believe in Jesus? This morning, the, the way I work through this passage, this sermon will be a little different than what I normally do. We're going to reflect mostly this morning on unbelief in John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. We're going to do that because that's what John does mostly in this text. When he comes to these verses, they're a transition point in this book. It's marking the very end of Jesus's public ministry. For, for chapters now, he's been revealing himself in word and in deed, through signs and through teaching. And so at this point, he's a wanted man. I mean, the authorities want him dead. Very few people believe. Why? Is Jesus unbelievable? So John spends the majority of these verses looking at unbelief, its nature, and its reality. So let's read this text. We're going to go back to verse 36b, the second half of verse 36. That's where we're going to start. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. 
And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So this morning, I want to look mostly at unbelief. And I want to do so from these different vantage points that John does. And then I want to reflect briefly on what this text is saying about true belief. So here's the main point I want you to get. While unbelief persists, it will not prevail. While unbelief persists or continues, it will not prevail. So keep believing in Jesus. Keep believing in Jesus. When we come to this text, Jesus has made clear that he's about to be lifted up, which means he will die on the cross, that this is how you will see his glory if you're to see his glory at all. But he's also made clear he will not be in the world much longer. The light will soon leave the world. And so it's fitting that right after he said these things, there in verse 36b, the second part of that verse, John writes, he departed and he hid himself from them. Jesus is not just hiding himself because he's about to be arrested. He's hiding himself from those who refuse to believe. So the first observation John makes about unbelief is this. Number one, unbelief in Jesus, unbelief is irrational. It's irrational. Verse 37. That's what John clearly says about those who refuse to believe. He says, though, or although. Now, we use that word although when we're making the point that whatever happened, whatever occurred, it was against what the condition demanded. Although he was allergic to honey, he ate the honey anyway. Although she told him exactly what to get when he went to the grocery store, he bought all the deals because they were cheaper and got nothing of what she told him. Although indicates that what happened happened in spite of what should have happened. Although he had done many signs, they did not believe. Now, remember why John wrote this book. 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, find life in his name. And strangely, many don't believe. They've seen signs. They saw the ultimate sign, Lazarus raised from the dead. And yet unbelief persists. And as John here is reflecting on their unbelief in Jesus, he is saying unbelief is irrational. Those who did not believe knew he had done the kinds of things only God can do. They saw Lazarus who was dead and alive, yet they refused to believe in Jesus. So I think John wanted his first readers be certain that the gospel they had received and believed in, the gospel that was being rejected, no matter by who or how many, that their unbelief is irrational. So for you who do believe, John wants you to believe very simply, you're not crazy. You have very rational, good grounds to trust Jesus, take him at his word, and follow him. And the fact that so many do not believe is in spite of, not because of, of solid evidence. Now, your, your, your own life experience, I think, resonates with this. You watch people, in spite of what is absolutely best for them, do what they shouldn't. The alcoholic who knows alcohol is destroying them will not take the costly step to break the addiction. A nation that's immersed in corruption sees the signs of it, won't take the steps to break the cycle. Those who heard Jesus' teaching have seen the power and the signs who or could give careful study to the credibility of the fact that he was raised after the fact, simply refuse to believe. And John is saying unbelief might be widespread. Those who are in power may not believe, but it's not rational. And to you who do believe, your faith in Jesus as the Son of God is credible, logical, not crazy. If you don't believe, I would challenge you to consider how reasonable whatever it is you stake your life on is. Jesus presents himself as the most logical, credible place and person for your faith. Unbelief, verse 37, is irrational. And second, number two, unbelief is expected. Verse 38, unbelief is expected. So let's follow John's logic. Even though they saw the signs, they still did not believe so that the word spoken by Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now, before we consider that word, notice John is saying their unbelief fulfilled it. So that their unbelief was expected because it was 
predicted. It was prophesied long before. And John here quotes Isaiah 53, 1. The last of the servant songs. Isaiah is revealing an exalted servant who will be rejected and mysteriously will bear sin. Who has believed what he heard from us? So for Isaiah, the us was the believing remnant. And he's he's looking forward and he's foretelling that those who hear the servant's message won't believe the servant. How did Jesus display the arm of the Lord, which Isaiah speaks of in his signs, his powerful miracles? So why wouldn't people believe? Well, in Isaiah 53, 2, you go on to read, For he grew up like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no majesty that we should look at him. So what Isaiah was saying is that the servant will come, he will demonstrate the arm, the power of the Lord, but he's not going to be naturally or outwardly impressive. And his own generation will be blind. Should have believed. That's what John says, given the signs. But their unbelief was predicted long ago. And this is interesting, isn't it? As we look at unbelief from this angle, we see very clearly that unbelief was part of, not the deviation from, God's plan. Unbelief never stops, never thwarts the plans of God. I mean, what was their unbelief in John's gospel leading to? It's leading them to kill Jesus to send Jesus to the cross. Their unbelief is leading to God's great plan of salvation. So do you think that right now God is threatened by the unbelief of the world? You know, in texts like this one in Isaiah, here is God calling his shot so that we as his people will live with total confidence when unbelief is all around us. When you see unbelief all around you, it's not taking the Lord by surprise. John is clear about all the unbelief there is in Jesus. It was expected. And if God could use that to fulfill his plan for salvation, believe Jesus that he's using all of the unbelief even now for the consummation of everything. You feel the darkness of unbelief. I mean, maybe you're sitting here today and you know opposition for your belief. Maybe you know discouragement because people don't believe. But do you see how unbelief is not stopping the plan of God? Uh, the, The reason God reveals things to his people ahead of time is not that we'll be looking for signs, but that we'll trust him when things look dark when we don't understand. I mean, have we ever seen Jesus in this gospel or any gospel, Jesus who left the glories of heaven to come to save? Has he ever been in any kind of panic because people don't believe in him? 
Do we ever see Jesus fretting that the Father's plan is somehow off track? Or does he clearly understand every moment is unfolding according to the plan? You don't believe in Jesus. It's a warning to you. Your unbelief, in whatever way your unbelief is expressing itself, will not prevail. They won't work ultimately against God's purposes. It will be used for God's purposes. Now, for you, that might mean you're trusting in a wholly different God than the God of the Bible, the triune God revealed in Scripture. Or it might mean you're just content in your apathy and you don't care. And so you just ignore it all. But your unbelief is expected, not unexpected by God. And it's being used by God's in, God in ways you, you don't expect. Unbelief is expected. What else does John show us? Number three, number three, unbelief is a sign of judgment. It is a sign of judgment, verses 39 through 41. Notice what John says is the implication of this in verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. Does John, does Jesus hold them responsible for their unbelief? Yes. Although they saw the signs, they still did not believe. But notice here, John reasons from Isaiah's prophecy long ago that an implication is they could not believe. So be warned that with unbelief, there can come a point when there's no turning back. John quotes again from Isaiah. This time he goes to Isaiah 6, which Joseph read for us. When the prophet who saw the holiness of the Lord repented and then being made right with God, he is commissioned to prophesy and he's told a hard word. Your ministry, Isaiah, will have a hardening Effect. The vast majority of your hearers will reject what you tell them. The effect of your ministry will, verse 40, blind their eyes, harden their hearts, lest they see, understand, turn, be healed. And John is quoting that to communicate that. Isaiah's ministry had a hardening, not a saving effect. And he's saying that the same and even more happened in Jesus's ministry. John is saying that the hard-hearted unbelief of so many is not just an effect of Jesus's ministry. It's part of its purpose. He has blinded their eyes hardened their heart, lest they see, understand, turn, and so are healed. Unbelief in Jesus's own generation 
was a sign of the judgment of God. Were they responsible for their unbelief? Yes. Did God harden? Did Jesus harden their hearts and blind their eyes? Yes. God is sovereign over belief, over unbelief. It's the same that you read with Pharaoh in the Exodus. We read Pharaoh hardened his heart. We read God hardened his heart. Now, how do we think about judgment in this way? How do we think about this? I I want you to understand when you think about the judgment of God, it has been rightly called God's strange work. So we know from texts like Micah 7, 18, God delights to show mercy. We know from texts like Ezekiel 33, 11, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We know from Isaiah 28, 21, that in judging, God does his alien or strange work. Judgment is not what has marked God's work eternally because evil has not existed eternally. And yet, when sin entered the world, God, who cannot deny himself, he cannot deny who he is, his character, his holy, good, loving, just character, he opposed sin. Judgment is his strange work. If you think about it, you should consider just this past week the amount of sin, high treason committed against God each day. Time has passed. God has not immediately judged it as sin deserves. Consider it in your own life. The sin you committed against God yesterday. And yet God has raised the sun. Rain still comes in other parts of the world, but it comes here sometimes. God is so merciful, so merciful with finite, sinful human beings made in his image. Judgment is his strange work. Necessary, good, because of sin, but not what God delights in, in the same way that he delights in showing mercy. And yet, judgment does come from God. And when you see hardened, widespread unbelief, it's a sign of it. When you see this, when you see entrenched hardness, it leads to idolatry in various forms. God is not being mocked. He does harden. You're laboring to make the gospel known. One reality that I think you must accept in faithful ministry when you continue to encounter hard hearts is this. God may be using you for the sake of judgment. May not be, but he may be. Just as a a way of encouragement this week, I talked to a missionary friend of mine, hard country, told me about a man who sought him out this past week, said, I met you in 1998. You shared the gospel with me over coffee. And that was pivotal in my life in coming to saving faith in Jesus. He had no idea 
He learned it this week. We don't know how the Lord may use us in our faithfulnesses, but he can use us for salvation and for judgment. And when it comes to hardening, we don't have knowledge as to when that point comes, but we need to be aware from this text. We need to be warned from it. Point can come when someone is given over to unbelief, a judicial hardening of their hearts. So be warned that in God's economy, unbelief is deadly, eternally serious. What you're believing, what you don't believe matters eternally. If you're hearing this, I would hope that you would receive this. If you don't believe as a very gracious warning from God, you're here. Receive the warning. What's remarkable about this is what John says about why Isaiah said this about unbelief. There in verse 41, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. I think John is saying Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate glory of Christ. Remarkable. But John writes this to say that this text finds its fulfillment in Jesus's ministry as the one who was hardening and blinding the very hearts of his hearers. So Jesus reveals, we've seen that, but notice Jesus can conceal. He hid himself from them. He can get glory in salvation. He can get glory in judgment. Their unbelief was a sign of his judgment. And yet they thought they stood in judgment over him. So guard your heart. So much is at stake in your heart. There's an entire unseen realm of this world that is very interested in what you believe and what you don't believe. That's why we have to be vigilant together as a church. Tragedy. That entire nations and regions are populated by churches through neglect or apathy. Once believed, no longer do. Simply fail away. How tragic when churches that were once positive, vibrant witnesses for the risen Christ become negative ones. Unbelief widespread is a sign of God's judgment, not his absence. Be vigilant. Number four, number four, unbelief threatens your faith. Unbelief threatens your faith, verses 42 to 43. I'm going to read these verses again. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, this is a very different way of viewing unbelief. John says many believed in him. Now, we've already seen John do this in his own gospel back in chapter 8. He spoke of a believing in Jesus that's not real belief in Jesus. 
What do I mean? John 8, Jesus taught, I'm the light of the world. Only way you'll see me is when I'm lifted up. And John writes, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And yet, in the very next verse, Jesus begins addressing the people who believed in him. And it turns out they didn't believe in him at all. Called them sons of their father, the devil. They couldn't accept his teaching. They hated his authority. Here we're reading of authorities who believed in Jesus, but for fear, they didn't confess it. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. Now, what's at the root of this? Why won't they confess Christ? John says they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So what is this? I wrestled over, is this real belief? Is this scripture's way of justifying what we might call secret believers? I think for John, this is clearly another angle from which to discern unbelief. It's unbelief dressed up in some way as belief. Looks like belief, but it's not. How do we know? We know from what John tells us about what they love. They love man-made, man-centered glory more than God's glory. Just last week, we saw in verse 25, Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We saw that hate is about fundamental preference. Whose glory your life is centered on? Jesus taught that there's a kind of heart in which the seed falls Looks like they're following Jesus, but then the worries of this life, the cares of the allures of this world just choke the seed away. So there's a kind of person that can present and even profess belief, but time ends up telling they did not possess belief. Now, maybe these authorities came to faith after the resurrection. We don't know. But as John wrote this letter, He was aware that a kind of belief persisted and John wanted his readers to understand and to even discern that's not belief at all. True belief is marked by it evidences itself in counting the cost. When you come to the time of choosing between world, flesh, devil, You desire God's glory and obedience to God over the rest. Do you do that perfectly? No. But do you do it faithfully and repentantly? Yes. Now, I think there's some application here for missions. We want to see people come to faith. We want to see people from unreached peoples come to faith. Praise God, we've seen some of that. And yet, this teaches us that, number one, we should never relax the teaching of Scripture, the call of what it means to be a disciple to anyone who would profess faith. John is condemning these authorities for their fear of publicly confessing Jesus. Their fear rooted in man-fearing 
which is another way of saying they desire, we all do when we fear men, man-made glory over God's. So when it comes to saving faith, there is wisdom in saying, time will tell. We want the gospel to go forward. And it's because we want people to come to a true and saving faith that we must be honest, both about the cost of following Jesus. Certainly there are hard situations that present themselves. But scripture is sufficient, even for the hardest issues. And so just as we're honest about the cost, we are honest about the goodness and the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus will never fail his people in even the costliest, hardest obediences he calls us to. Jesus was worthy of the authorities risking and leaving the synagogue for his namesake. So, as I think about underground churches, I recognize that the state can, and at times the state does, necessitate underground churches. And I also understand any church to be responsible to the full teaching of Scripture. Gathering might be underground. It might move from place to place. But their secret gatherings cannot be because they are hiding their faith by pretending like these religious leaders to be something they are not. John clearly would have us use much discernment and carefulness when it comes to the idea of a secret believer. John is questioning, not commending that faith. This text certainly rules out staying in the synagogue or the mosque if you come to faith from any of those backgrounds. Now think about the other side of this. What a discouragement. This kind of unbelief is that's masked as belief to Jesus's true brothers and sisters who are believing in him. When their faith is known, when they're counting the cost, when they know opposition and persecution, when their life has been completely upended because they have believed in Jesus Christ. What would I say to an Afghan brother or sister or a Chinese brother or sister who in the past weeks I am aware of personally who have counted the cost for publicly following Jesus? You should have pretended to be something you weren't. No, I would say the risen Christ has made great promises to you if you're following him. If you've counted the cost, if publicly following Jesus, if right now you're knowing this cost of rejection or opposition or your life has been totally upended, I would say to you, keep going. It's worth it. Your Savior sees you. He knows you. He has you. He will keep you. He will reward you. Your belief is being tested and tried, and on the last day it will stand, celebrated by the whole host of heaven. What a warning this text is to us against fearing man, seeking the approval of this world. One of the best ways to fight against this is to just be very clear about who you are as a Christian. Just own it. Own it. 
You know the temptations you have with fear of man. Cut it off. Let them think you're strange. Trust Jesus if you're opposed or persecuted. Fear of man is about whose glory is greater to you. What do you see in this world? What do you see that can compare with the glory of the one you don't see? What can this world give you that compares with the glory that is coming? I think the world's glories are so alluring, but they won't last. So be vigilant. True belief in Jesus is marked by a life oriented toward his glory and not your own. Unbelief really does threaten your faith. And number five, unbelief will be judged. It's not just a sign of judgment. It will be judged. Let me just read verses 47 and 48. This is, this is the end, 47 to 50. Skip on down. I'm going to read 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. What Jesus is saying is he didn't come in his first mission primarily to judge, but to save. But he does say judgment has been assigned to him. So I think he's saying there's a particular weight and responsibility for those who've heard my words. There's a particular weight and responsibility if you hear the words of Jesus from Scripture. It's never neutral to hear the word of Jesus. It either works toward salvation or toward judgment. Came first to save, but judgment is coming. And he says that his word will stand as the standard of judgment on the last day. Unbelief will be judged by Jesus. And there John grounds his authority, verse 49, his authority to judge in the fact that the Father sent him and has spoken, he's spoken all the Father has told him. And he obeyed it all, all the way to the cross. His word will be the standard for final judgment on all belief. Now, that's a lot different from our world. Our world loves the idea of faith. Our world is not concerned very much at all with the object of your faith. But Jesus is. What you do with his word matters. Many had rejected his word, blind to who Jesus is. And as the one sent by the father who spoke everything the father gave him, his word has authority. It's not a take it or leave it. It was God's word that was being rejected. It was God's word that was disbelieved in the beginning in the garden that led to the judgment of our first parents. And Jesus is putting his own word, his own teaching on par with God's. We must know God's word to keep God's word. Unbelief is unconcerned for what God has said. Unbelief relaxes it. It twists it. It rejects it. Do you have habits to take in the word of God? What habits should you have to fill your heart and mind with the word of God? Are, are there better ways this week you could make use of your time than last week? There is in my life. So much is at stake. And here we are at the close of Jesus's public ministry. And the teaching is very clear. He'll judge unbelief. 
Very clear. Don't be surprised by unbelief. Don't settle for unbelief. It's irrational. And yet it's prophesied and predicted. It's a sign of judgment. It threatens your faith. Jesus will judge it. He makes so clear to all of us, if we would follow him, it will be costly. But do you see how unbelief, as the the one sent by the Father, whose miracles testify who he is, as the one lifted up on the cross and then into glory into heaven, do you see how unbelief is even more costly? Offers a comfort, it offers a glory, but it won't last. Look at unbelief from all these different angles. Why? So that you'll believe and keep on believing. That's what John wants for you. And more briefly here, that's what he wants for us. A few reasons to believe. Number one, a few reasons to believe. True belief is in the Father and the Son. True belief is in the Father and the Son. That's verses 44 and 45. Catechism captures this so well. What is our only hope in life and death that we are not our own, but we belong both body and soul and life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus says. Verse 44, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And the sense of that is not only in me, but also in him who sent me. John comes to the end of this chapter, these verses. He's not saying anything he hasn't already said. What he's doing is he's recounting a number of high points in this gospel already. Jesus cannot be separated from the Father. He's his agent of revelation in the world. He's not revealing himself as one more prophet, but as the son whom the Father has sent and declared to the world, in him is my pleasure. You're meant to think on the greatness of the God on whom, in whom your faith rests. In Christ, who came willingly, who left the glories of heaven, whose death on the cross secured salvation, proven by the fact that he got up from the dead. And the Father, who from all eternity has been and is Father, Friends, Jesus has revealed the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. There's not a God in heaven who's unlike Jesus. This positive statement of belief excludes any faith that denies the Son. It also excludes any faith that denies the Father who sent the Son. Jesus will not be misunderstood. No true belief in God that does not believe in him. Because Father and Son have enjoyed life together from all eternity, along with the Spirit. And the way to come into communion, life with the true God, is through the Son, by the Spirit. And yet, to believe in the Son is to have a claim on the one true God. And to be certain, He claims you. Now, I I know that There's many different circumstances in this room. I don't know your present status in the world, but if that is true of you, that changes everything about your present and your future. You are loved and welcomed by the Father and the Son. True belief is in the Father and the Son. Number two, true belief 
sees Jesus as the light. Verse 46. It sees Jesus as the light. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, in John's gospel, darkness is not the absence of light. It is moral darkness. It's evil. It's the sphere in which those who do not believe live. And Jesus has come as light to reveal the Father. He's come as light to overcome this dark spiritual world. When light comes, it shines. And when light comes, it exposes. And so Jesus must first expose you. He must give you eyes to see yourself and to see who you really are before you can see God, before he can bring transformation. Jesus doesn't just expose you, he redeems you. That's what he's doing here. He's revealing the world to itself. And as he reveals our darkness to us, he graciously gives us eyes to see that and to see his glory, to see who he is. He does this because he knows what's in our hearts. And he's deadly serious about freeing sinners from darkness. So he came into this dark world and he went to the depth of darkness at the cross There's no darkness in all of human history. There was at that moment. And it looked like darkness had overcome the one who is light. But death could not hold Jesus. Death really cannot keep the only one who truly was a good man down. God raised him. And Jesus was lifted up to heaven where he reigns. And so now Jesus, who is king of the universe, calls you graciously to repent of your darkness your sin and to believe in him and he will receive you and give you life. Come into the light this morning. He says, you come into this light, you not only see him by faith, you see the world, everything by him. You begin to discern yourself in the world through him. He lived, he died, he was raised to free you from a life of hopeless moral darkness. Just think of some of the people we've met in this gospel. The Samaritan woman who had many husbands, the blind man, so mistreated, had never seen anything until he saw Jesus. His own friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, who they wanted to kill, an invalid by a pool. So many unnamed to us, known to Jesus, rescued from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. How kind of Jesus. And he's done the same for all of you who have believed. You've come to the light. Walk in it. Because finally, True belief is urgent. True belief is urgent. That's what John wants to leave you with as he comes to this end point of Jesus' public ministry. The world is filled with unbelief. It's urgent to believe. He's opposed, but his plan is not being thwarted. 
No matter how dark the world gets, the world is being ruled by the one who has overcome it. Moment by moment, he's leading it to where he purposes it to go. And so the judgment that is coming is not just to warn the one who does not believe, it's to encourage you who do believe. True belief is urgent because judgment is coming. When the word of Christ and those who have trusted Christ who believed will be vindicated. Remember that. But more than that, stake your life on that. Every risk you've taken, every costly sacrifice you take, every step you take, trusting the word of Jesus will be worth it. Nothing you do by faith in Jesus Christ is in vain. Billion years from now, if we can speak of eternity in terms of time, in eternity, when you look back on time, you will never regret believing in Christ. No matter what it cost you. Because he said everything that the father has told him. And he alone has the words of eternal life.